This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is October 21st, 2021, and this is episode 262. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the BC NDP bring in two bills, one to remove the free from freedom of information, and one to maybe put the forest back in forestry ministry. We'll get into it. Thank you to everyone who contributes to the show monthly, annually, through retweets. Through reviews, I don't think we've had a review in a long time. Maybe go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave a review. Leave us a Google review on Google.com's homepage. Leave us a review on Facebook. I think we have a Facebook page. It all helps. It all we helps. Do. Or just give us money. Patreon.com slash Politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Before we get into the new bills introduced this week, we are back at the Greatest BC Premier Bracket. Last week, we looked at the 90s NDP. Mike Harcourt took Glenn Clark down 30 votes to 10. It wasn't even close. Not surprising the way we went through it. I don't think either of them had a stellar legacy, but Glenn Clark's was a lot more embroiled in scandal on the way out. <laughs> I saw a piece today about Bill Vanderzam and how he was on a conspiracy podcast talking about how COVID is a communist or possibly fascist, but probably communist plot to take over the world. And I'm like, damn, I wish he'd gone at least one more round so we could keep talking about how crazy that man is and how he led the province. Instead, we're going to jump ahead to the modern era BC liberals. I had thought I was putting Ujal Dessange and Dan Miller together, but I think when I set up the bracket, I realized that would be a fairly boring contest and I'd rather move some of the more likely to wins, pit them against those. So, we'll have a couple boring weeks later. Don't worry about it. This week, we're going to talk Gordon Campbell versus Christy Clark. This feels like a heavyweight match, but I couldn't figure out a different way to do it. So, it wasn't this, but here we are. Gordon Campbell, 34th Premier of BC from June 5th, 2001 to March 14th, 2011. Previously Mayor of Vancouver from 1986 to 93, he became leader the year he left the mayor's office. In the Battle of the Three Gordons, he defeated Gordon Wilson, the incumbent leader of the BC Liberals, who was pushed out as leader but decided to run again, and Gordon Gibson Jr. It's like the, the Monty Python Bruce sketch, but Canadians Look, the and BC Gordon. Liberals are about diversity. They have all the flavors of Gordon at that time. But there's like a certain generation of Canadians where Gordon is just an extreme- Gordy Howe, Gordowney. Let's move on. The <laughs> Gordon Campbell wins the leadership, but he does not win the 1996 election. In some views, he does because his party gets the most votes, but they did not get the seat count. So, he continues 
after he went, loses in 96, he continues as leader. He's one of the few BC political party leaders in modern history who's kept power after a loss. I guess it's because it was a loss with a pretty big asterisk and he brought the party from nothing. In 2001, though, he took it all but two seats, went to the BC Liberals. It was 77 to 2. He took the second largest majority in the vote share with 57.6% to the NDP's 21.6. And I'm pretty sure the largest like majority in seat counts. I didn't look. Definitely in BC, I think. There's, what was it? I think there was a New Brunswick election in the 90s where the, Probably. the Liberals. I, did, I can't remember. There was a New Brunswick election where a party won all the seats. Yeah, that's... Question period was a bit of a farce. It normally is a farce, but I think they so. had opposition uh, leaders like as guests in the House eventually because it was being embarrassing. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is also the first election in BC that I have any real memory of. Gordon Campbell would go on to be re-elected in 2005 and 2009, with his popular vote sharing falling to about 45.8% in both of those. The NDP regained their vote to 41.5 in 2005 and to 42.2 in 2009, but they only grew from to 33 and then 35 seats. Campbell did a lot. His Wikipedia page is long, so if he wins, we will talk. We have lots to talk about him, and that's without even digging into the biographies. We're into recent history. It's actually easy to figure out what these people did. Let's, I don't know how to describe this quickly, but let's just say Campbell brought in a massive suite of economic reforms that were often quite eccentric and like technocratically devised up in his office. Technocratic's not the right word. Yeah, there, there are. Yeah, th there are stories of him like, going, coming back from vacation after reading about an idea while on vacation and just like deciding to do that, which I think is actually how we got the carbon tats. That is one legacy I, I didn't even in put the, in this um, list. That is a good legacy of Gordon Campbell. Yeah, that's uh, definitely should go on there. And it's probably, that and the Olympics, I think, are probably the two most consequential things he did. But I think it was in a... So to matter of confidence, that was the one of the examples they gave of uh, Campbell's somewhat eccentric, somewhat nerdy approach to drafting I've definitely policy. heard that before. On Campbell's first day in office, he cut income taxes across the board at every bracket by 25%. He also instituted a bunch of corporate income and capital taxes. Uh, he also instituted a bunch of cuts to corporate income and capital taxes. This punched a giant hole in the BC budget, so he had to make a bunch of cuts elsewhere. He cut welfare rates, he cut social services, he deregulated a bunch of industries, he sold a bunch of assets, notably the fast ferries, which were pretty a pretty good sale if you managed to find anyone to buy them. He also reduced the size of the civil service quite significantly, an issue the BC government I think is still struggling to recover from, and closed offices of the government across the province. One of the early things he did was also sell off BC Rail. This would come back to haunt him and be part of what eventually led to his downfall. Not the like primary driver, but the Bazzi Verk trial and the email scandals haunted the government for quite a while. He made massive cuts to education and healthcare. At one point in 2004, they did a 15% pay cut to healthcare employees. They put legislated contracts to both healthcare workers and education workers. Both of these were fought all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and like the healthcare or, and the education 
contract, the teacher contract, was only recently ruled unconstitutional, like when the NDP got in. So these were long fights. It was not a happy time in the labor world. In 2003, Campbell pled guilty to drunk driving while vacationing in Hawaii. Like you mentioned, he brought the Winter Olympics here. And the last thing I want to say about Gordon Campbell is he loved referendums. One of his first ones was based on, I think, something he initiated even before he was premier. In, two, in the year 2000, he and another member of the BC Liberals sued the Nizga First Nation for the treaty they signed, claiming it was unconstitutional. They fought that and eventually lost it in court. The court's noting that Section 35 of the Constitution protects treaties and Aboriginal rights and title, and that includes modern ones. And so, Campbell didn't seem like a fan of the modern treaty process, and so he ran this referendum in 2002, I believe it was, on eight principles that BC should adopt or not on treaty negotiations. And this was wildly racist. It included things like, should the existing tax exemptions for Aboriginal people just be phased out? Which is a federal legislation, and in some cases, treaty uh, obligations. Like, it's just not something that's like the equalization can. one, like in Alberta. It's just wild. It's partisan. It's ugly. A lot of people just called for a boycott of it. I don't even know what the results of it were, but... I was looking it up earlier. I think turnout was 38%, but and among that, it passed pretty handedly. <sighs> After that referendum, Campbell also did it oversaw a citizens' assembly on electoral reform that recommended the single transferable vote, which went to referendum in 2005. It was voted in favor by a majority, but it required a 60% majority in all of, in most of the constituencies. There was a weird bar for it the, that it didn't make. Yeah. It, it hit like 58, 59%, I think. So I normally hate referendums and think they're a terrible way to do policy and just should not be done for the most part. Both the previous one we mentioned, the next one we will mention in a moment about the HSD. Electoral reform is the one exception I, I have to that just because it does so fundamentally change the relationship between voters and the elected representatives that some form of ratification that's in addition to the normal legislative process seems pretty re both reasonable and desirable still setting it at 60 percent is just dumb so because it was a awkwardly high result but not above the awkwardly high threshold they re-ran the stv referendum in 2009 and it was massively defeated unfortunately for electoral reform proponents. As you mentioned, the HST referendum was also under his watch. I think the referendum itself may have happened under Christy Clark, but I didn't look up the exact dates for that. Basically, what happened in 2009 during the election, it, the idea of an HST, a harmonized sales tax, so getting rid of our PST in favor of a harmonized provincial and federal sales tax, which makes a lot of economic sense, but there are... It is just a much better... Yeah, sense. there are some like jurisdictional reasons you might not like it or maybe some it, uh, reasons relating to whether it's regressive or not relative to each tax individual. Overall, economists are pretty united that HST is much better. Nevertheless, it wasn't popular. It's much administrative. 
It's a lot more administrative. So, in 2009, he said he wasn't going to do it. And then he promptly did it after being reelected to government. His party like broke at the seams over this. MLAs were leaving the party to join the conservatives at the time. He had cabinet ministers in open revolt. Bill Vanderzam and Bill Thielman launched this citizens referent petition initiative that ultimately got the signatures it needed and then led to a referendum that led to the repeal of the HST. And so amid all of this and the BC Rail stuff coming back to haunt him, Campbell announced his resignation in disgrace in November 2010, like so many BC premiers before him. Never. The, the actual referendum uh, took place from June 13th to August 5th, 2011. So Campbell was out of office by the time that it actually he happened. He would go on to be appointed High Commissioner in the UK. So he did land on his feet in the end. He's, he's finished that role, but that was the era of Gordon Campbell. Immediately following him, Christy Clark was elected the leader of the BC Liberals. She would be the 35th Premier from March 14th, 2011 to July 18th, 2017. She won a fourth, a four-way race for the leadership of the party over Kevin Falcon on the final ballot. She was previously Minister of Education and Deputy Premier under Gordon Campbell. Uh, a lot of teachers do not have fond memories of that time because she imposed a lot of contracts and did a lot to promote choice in education, let's say. She did not seek re-election in 2005, though, as she wanted to focus on her young family. And so she came back without much of the baggage of the Campbell-era liberals. Yeah. In the intervening time, I think she also contested the Vancouver... NPA mayoral nomination with Sam Sullivan was unsuccessful at that. So she becomes leader of a deeply unpopular BC Liberal Party and one that's deeply fractured with the BC Conservatives growing in popularity. A few of the polls in this era showed the Liberals and Conservatives at similar levels around like 20% each with the NDP sitting in the 40s. And this led it to look like 2013 was going to be a landslide for Adrian Dix. Famously, it was not. <laughs> yeah, I think most famously, was it the province that ran the headline with a picture of Adrian Ditz? This man could kick your dog and win? I think that's poppy? what it was. I yeah. think it was kick a poppy. Yeah, this man could kick a poppy and still win. Turns out, poppy or no, he could not Yeah, win. he had a bit of baggage from the 90s era NDP. He was accused of waffling on the Kinder Morgan pipeline being for it until he was against it. Clark ran an incredibly smooth campaign focused on jobs, LNG, and getting the province to be debt-free. She ended up taking 44.1% of the vote, so still down from Campbell's wins, but it was enough to beat the NDP's 37.7 and give them a 49-34 seat lead. This was also the election when Andrew Weaver won his seat, the first seat for the BC Greens. Clark, funnily enough, lost her, the seat she contested, Vancouver Point Grey. I was a voter in that constituency at that point, to David Eby, the now Attorney General. So she would have to go on to win a by-election in Kelowna West, where Ben Stewart stepped aside, and he is now the MP, that, he is now the MLA there after Christy Clark resigned that seat. So it's just musical chairs between the two of them out in Kelowna. Clark 
As Premier issued an apology to Chinese Canadians in 2014 and to the First Nations leaders for the hanging of the Sokolton chiefs way back in 1864 by Justice Begbie. She also liked referendums and forced one upon Metro Vancouver over whether to fund transit expansion with increased fuel and property taxes that ultimately failed. There was a, there was a was it a half point of PST? Yeah, on there was a local well, sales tax. That was the other part of it. I couldn't remember offhand. I think it was the PSD that actually got the most heat. People, or at least within my section of Vancouver, it did I? I the the fuel stuff may have played more out in, you know, the Laneleys. Nevertheless, she did build some transit. She helped build the or see the Evergreen Line to completion. She also was a big proponent of Site C getting that underway and had wanted to get a giant bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel, which the NDP subsequently scrapped upon their formation in government. The 2017 election comes along and you can go back and listen to our archives on that. And she basically struggled to really captivate or present a vision of why the BC Liberals should still be in government after 16 years and ultimately ended up essentially tying in the popular votes, a slight lead for the Liberals 40.4% to the NDP's 40.3%. And it was a 43-41 three-seat victory. So a two-seat victory for the Liberals, but they ultimately could not do a deal with the BC Greens. The NDP famously did. Clark did present a throne speech that bizarrely included all of the Green and Liberal, all of the Green and NDP promises she could name, but that did not win the confidence of the other members, and so they voted her down. She tendered her resignation to Lieutenant Governor Judith Gishon, but also called for another election right away, which was turned down, and John Horgan was asked to form government in 2017. There you have it. Gordon Campbell versus Christy Clark, Politicoast pod on Twitter or politicoast.ca slash bracket to vote. Let's jump into the main segment today, Dom of Information, the free may be gone. The government introduced a bill this week to modernize and update our freedom of information legislation, something that has been sorely asked for and demanded by many people. And maybe they should have been careful what they wished for. I was just speaking of updating part of the uh, Privacy Act as well. But yeah, since you're just speaking of Tracy Clark, I'm trying to imagine the reaction of an opposition leader, John Horgan, if Christy Clark had introduced this bill and the word apoplectic comes to mind. Let's go through what's in the bill and then we can really zero in on, I think, the couple areas of criticism. And so, What's in the bill I'm going to be taking from the government's press release, as well as the letter from Michael McAvoy, the BC Information and Privacy Commissioner, who does like some parts of it. It's not all bad. So it's, it is a mixed bag, though. The bill updates data residency provisions to try to modernize them. This is building off of many of the emergency changes done during the pandemic. So schools could use things like... G Suite or Google software or Google Classrooms or Microsoft Teams without having to have all of the data be held in BC. This is debated in privacy circles because it's nice to have all of your data here because then it's subject to BC law, but it also limits how many tech companies you can work with. So I think the privacy commissioner is open to some expansion of this, but he highlights that he's quite concerned that 
the bill removes data residency requirements altogether and puts a lot of the specifics into regulations that we don't have yet. Yeah, this is one of those things where just I think the nature of modern technology and particularly the way everything is so cloud-based these days, yeah, it's just not particularly practical to have any little bit of data require that to be stored in Canada or in BC. And it's not entirely clear here, and in part because we haven't seen the regulations, but I could definitely see a pretty reasonable thing where you have a tiered system where, I don't know, like social insurance numbers and health records must be stored domestically, whereas, I don't know, like telephone numbers and postal codes and the stuff you on your basic Google account is fine if it's uh, stored elsewhere. The next set of changes are uh, a bit more around penalties and fines. So there will now be mandatory privacy breach reporting for public sector bodies, which is really good to see. There will also be penalties for any public sector employee or organization that deliberately deletes requested data or those uh, found to be, quote, snooping through files you don't need access to. Just like things that probably should have been in there much earlier. These are well supported by Michael McAvoy as well. I'll come back to the fee because that's where we're probably going to spend the most time talking. There's a number of changes around equity, diversity, inclusivity, and Indigenous issues. The way I saw it described is basically the public bodies will have to disclose information that could affect the rights and interests of Indigenous people, and in certain cases will have to consult with Indigenous people about disclosure if it might impact culturally sensitive issues. So I think those are reasonable and probably tied into the UNDRIP focus and lens that all legislation is going through now. And there are also some changes to remove non-inclusive language. So it's a gender-neutral bill now. Additionally, it adds the BC Association of Chiefs of Police and BC Association of Municipal Police as public bodies, which is good to see. Michael McAvoy is in support of these fines. And then there are some more controversial ones. And like I said, we'll come back to the fees. It's the one everyone's focused in on. McAvoy highlights that the Office of Premier is being removed as a public body. He says this is probably because the government thinks this is an unnecessary designation because the premier is the first minister and in the government's minds that just makes the premier's office a ministry and so you don't need to doubly confirm it. But McAvoy points out that's not 100% clear in law and there's no harm in saying explicitly that the office of the premier is covered by freedom of information. This is definitely one of the things I think uh – Opposition leader Premier John Horgan would have zeroed in on, and I said, I'm pretty pissed off if Christy Clark had proposed it. There's no reason to exempt the Premier from this, other than the fact that I think the Premier doesn't want to have to be bothered with it. He took some questions today in the House on that, and I think with reporters as well, and he was pretty flippant. This is where he it, showed his phone which, off to the camera and said, look, you can see what apps I have. I play Scrabble on it. Yeah, and there's another one going clipped on around about how it's nobody's business what's on his computer screen. Except it is. You're the premier. Yeah, and that's... Yeah, that's the thing. Like Between those two comments, to me this reads like John Horton doesn't want to be bothered with 
access to information requests more than anything else. And we're going to get to the fee in a bit. But like that's the s- sense I get in general on this is not a particularly politically motivated bill. This is a we've been in government for quite a few years now and we're starting to think like a government, not a political party, and do things that are best for kind of the bro- government in, in the broad sense rather than the Westminster sense of what's best for them. Another concerning change to McAvoy is that the bill will mean that the act would no longer apply to certain electronic records such as metadata and information that, quote, does not relate to business of the public body. And there's a third criteria that McAvoy is not as concerned about, but he flags these two, noting that metadata can be quite often useful for researchers and academics and even journalists who are trying to get senses of things. It's probably a pain to retain that and to report that, but it is valuable information. Like a lot of metadata automatically gets encoded by whatever program is being used. Like quite often if you want to get rid of metadata, you actually have to go out of your way to scrub the metadata. I think it's just a it can be a challenge to pull it if you're asking for weird metadata. Like if I asked for the location of every photo on your phone, it would take some time to pull that because it's not automatically put into a nice spreadsheet for you. I think the more concerning yeah. I mean Google probably has a way to pull it off of their own internal uses. But yeah, I think most commercial software doesn't. The other thing I could see as a motivation for that is just privacy considerations because it does stuff like track location data. The more concerning exemption here is this idea that information that, quote, does not relate to the business of the public body is quite broad and vague in that would this exempt useful third-party information? Like, we want to know if people in our public bodies and public organizations are doing things that's not related to their business. That's like scandals generally live in that realm. And finally, among the concerns he raises that isn't the fee, there would be additional grounds created for public bodies to ask the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner to just disregard requests for information. He says this is a troubling new criterion that basically says if requests are, quote, excessively broad, your university or your ministry can just ask the office to throw that request out. And he looked around the country and only one other province has such a criterion. Like He notes there are existing grounds for public bodies to request to deny access to information requests. And his office is generally pretty sympathetic to those, and they're generally pretty reasonable requests. But this one, again, excessively broad is very vague and unhelpful to both his office and probably the public. But let's talk about the fees. The idea here is there will be a modest application fee for non-personal FOIs. So right now in BC, you can do two kinds of free of information requests. You can ask for information about yourself. So I want to know what information the Ministry of Health has about me. I want to know what information Simon Fraser University has about me, so I can ask them for all of that. That's always been free, always will be free. That's your right. What's more common are non-personal FOIs, or at least what's more commonly publicly talked about, 
these are the ones media are doing. I've done a few for both work and just personal interest and for the podcasts. These are where you're asking to see reports. You're asking to see emails between ministers and staff about different issues. You're asking to see if such and such is mentioned. You're asking to see receipts for meals at White Spot, if you're being trivial. The government now wants to put or have the ability to put a modest fee on. When asked about this, Citizen Services Minister Lisa Baer suggested the price point of $25 per fee, which would, quote, be in line with other jurisdictions, namely Alberta, as far as I can tell. Yeah, in fact, they went so far as to say that they looked at a range of jurisdictions that had between, was it 5 and $50 for the fee? Uh, turns out, no, nobody actually has a $50 fee on this. They were not entirely honest on that front. And it's bizarre. So on the one hand, $25 is not a lot of money. But once you start applying for multiple FOIs or say you want to contact every health region or every school district for similar records, like in my line of work, I could feasibly request a policy document or the information that fed into a policy document from the I think there's 40 or 50 school districts in BC, and that suddenly becomes prohibitive if that's each individual FOI fee requests. And it, har it harms journalism, it harms academic research, it harms nonprofit research, and it harms our democracy. Yeah, so I, I'm fine with a small fee on this. I, I think there's definitely a case for it, but it should be a small fee, and $25 is not particularly small, particularly once you're doing more of these. If they propose 5 to $10, that would all said be pretty reasonable, probably wouldn't be a huge burden, and would be enough to discourage the abuses of the system from certain bloggers. Out so there. the federal fee is $5 right now, and what's nice about that one is it's just a hole where you can throw money because if you file a federal ATIP request, you will probably not get it back. I filed one it in what? February of last year, in February of 2020, asking for some stuff around Canada summer jobs information. And I was told it needed to be extended. And then the pandemic happened. And then they said, it's going to take some more time. And I'm still waiting. A year and a half. Yeah, the, the, the feds were pretty... They're awful. ...loose on some of that stuff and probably played a little um, looser than they should with the extensions on their own access to information policies. They pretty much nailed the, the work from home, how to get the civil service functioning by, like, June of 2020. There, there's really no need at that point to... Extend things My ATIP request was already three months late when the pandemic started. There was no excuse for that. Anyway, back to BC. The reason the government is pointing to, and they gave the numbers on this, I don't have them in front of me though, for needing fees or needing some deterrent from excessive requests is for the first while that the NDP was in power, the BC Liberals had a strategy of requesting basically everything they could everything they could think of, every email, every text message, every document produced, just like more than a shotgun approach, just hose down everything and doing dozens a week or more to the point where 
they're not getting anything valuable they're except occasionally but they're really just almost harassing government with it and opposition generally does this to some extent but the bc liberals really took it up a notch and as far as i can tell they've ratcheted it back in the past few months because it turns out that's just a waste of their time too because that's a lot of work to file those and then once you get the records you actually have to go through them yeah they don't have that many staff and so that problem has partially solved itself they'll still be filing a bunch and i'm sure the bc greens are as well but they're undoubtedly being more strategic about it as oppositions always were and the opposition has a right to question government that's why they are there and the other person the ndp pointed to was as i described on cambi report uh local person bob mackin who they say has done more fois than all media in the province combined at 300 or something yeah so um going to the tweet by rob shaw yeah uh Local blogger Bob Macking did 397 FOIs compared to the entire media of BC of 328. And that Bob Macking's relentless quest to find out how much the premier spent on a white spot burger cost the people of BC $1.2 million. So that was a claim by the government, and that's to some extent bullshit. Because people are employed so, full-time in the office, regardless of whether they're working on Bob Mackin's FOI or someone else's. Like, it undoubtedly costs more than the receipt. Also, like, they, they could be... Like, the government also has things it needs to do, and if they weren't paying those people to handle every weird request Bob Mackin sends their way, they would be doing other things that have a greater social They could answer benefit. my FOIs faster, maybe. I, I will yeah, give credit. Yeah, they could credit, answer like, your FOIs faster, or they could have a smaller FOI office and use that money for other Like, Mackin things. has broken some stories, because when you do a shotgun approach, you will find some meat. But between his approach and what the BC Liberals were doing, I can tell that it definitely impacted, or was seen to be impacting, the function of government, as you were mentioning. And so, I get the desire to try to curb that somewhat. At the same time, probably the better way to do it would be to be more proactive at disclosure. And as far as I can tell, there's not a lot in here to promote proactive disclosure of records and documents. Like, you shouldn't have to FOI every report produced by government. Most of those should just go out. Yeah, those should go out. And. I think it depends on what we're talking about. Yeah, there's definitely things that should be just released as a matter of course. Like the like the BC government's like economic development strategy just was never released publicly. And that needed to be FOI and things like that that obviously should be just out in the public. But also you do have times where you actually don't or where not having everything be super public facing has its benefits and like you, you do need governments to be able to deliberate without necessarily having the the harsh spotlight of scrutiny from everyone shot onto every little step in the process. And like, there's a good government case, I think, that you do need to be able to have frank discussions that are not necessarily going to be broadcast, perhaps without context to the general public or to the people most likely to take in disingenuous interpretation of them. 
Sure. So, there's like a natural arms race, right? Well, and there's also a natural arms race where you can bring in the most broad, strong, received FOI bill, but then the actors involved will just communicate differently. Like, people behave differently yeah, like, when they know that every email they write might get published in a month. Yeah, and, like, I've certainly heard from people who work for a variety of different levels of government in both public, or both kind of partisan and not-so-partisan roles of things that get decided via phone call rather than email for that reason. So, this bill is receiving a lot of public attention and opposition. The opposition members are naturally unhappy with it. One interesting thing that came up yesterday was Green MP, Green MLA Adam Olson raised a question of privilege. He noted that the House had convened a special committee to review the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, and that introducing this bill undermines the committee's activities. He cited a ruling by Madam Speaker Joan Sawicki of the legislature, as well as an instance in Australia in 2018, where the government introduced a bill that preempted the work of a committee that was studying the same issue. And it's basically making the court case that the committee needs to be able to do its work. And if it can't do its work, because you've introduced a bill, like the bill negates the point that the committee has to be able to finish. Should, should that make this bill out of order? It was a novel complaint. It puts against the principle of uh, parliamentary supremacy. Can MLAs and members introduce whatever they want in the House or not? Speaker Raj Chohan ruled today at 1 p.m. against the complaint. The principal complaint was dismissed on the technicality that it wasn't introduced at the first reasonable opportunity, which would have been Monday afternoon after the bill was introduced Monday morning, so he took too long. I guess he should have been quicker reading through the Australian case history of their parliament. And it's not totally unreasonable. I think that ruling is accurate on that front because you don't necessarily have to know all the other case histories to make a strong, you know, question of privilege. But people had been pointing out that there is a committee that's studying this. Why are you introducing a bill before the committee has even reported or even been reconstituted and met? Chohan goes on in his ruling, though, and we'll link to the Hansard where you can read it. It's right at the top of this afternoon's debates, or this was actually yesterday, Wednesday. He notes that in, quote, cir circumstances, the effectiveness of the work of such committee could be undermined by the introduction of a bill that relates directly and substantively to the work of that committee. That is not to say that committee proceedings may preclude the introduction of legislation. There may be unique, urgent, or otherwise necessary circumstances that may require the House to act swiftly through the consideration of legislation. Finally, let there be no doubt about the right of government and all members to introduce legislation for consideration of this House. But there are instances when the timing of the introduction of a bill could be discourteous to the House or one of its committees. Timing of the introduction of legislation should be carefully considered so as not to diminish or be perceived to diminish the important work that this House and its committee undertake outside of core legislative functions. That doesn't really say how he would have ruled on the merits of the case, so to speak, other than like sometimes a bill 
might not be okay if a com- like it's rude at very least he says you're being rude lisa bear you could have just waited part of the government's reasoning for introducing this bill now is that many of the interim measures put in place under the state of emergency and various covid measures are set to expire at the end of the year that kind of raises the point that the government either could have extended those with a bill like they announced that they're going to introduce legislation to extend other key COVID-19 orders, although that bill hasn't reached the floor, I believe. Yeah, that, that definitely seems like the more reasonable option, presuming that isn't a, just a pretense, which I think we can infer it is based on that. So there you have it. And this debate's going to be ongoing, and I'm sure we'll come back to it next week unless they force the bill through in the next couple of days because they easily could. They've already passed two or three bills this week. The Societies Act amendments have passed, for example, and I believe the miscellaneous amendments have also passed. To the chagrin of the Green Party who says they are abandoning dormant wells to the whims of oil companies using the Miscellaneous Amendments Act, which is a debate I'm not even going to get into because it's technical and I'm not even sure who's right. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eye on it. I think there are some valid things that this bill is doing, but the Privacy Commissioner raises such important points that this is one that definitely needs a lot more scrutiny and consideration before moving. Yeah, this feels like the first real big misstep of the current term of government the the NDP's in. And if you're going to do a misstep, do it in your first year, which they just passed. It was funny to see them put that press release out this week. <laughs> yeah, but it, the the other problem with this is it's pissed off all the reporters out there and that there there's a saying about not picking fights with people who buy ink by the barrel. <laughs> so I don't know, like I can point to a few instances where I think the uh, the press tour has been a little easy on the NDP on some things, but this is going to burn through a lot, any kind of residual goodwill in a pretty big way. And I think they're in for a rougher ride going forward. Let's move on to the other bill introduced this week. I'm going to title this John Speaks for the Trees because I can't tell if this is a Lorax moment or I don't know, maybe he's on the opposite side. I don't know. We we really need to get like a forestry person in. We have a new forestry bill. We can't tell if it's good or not. I think it might be good. It has one of those policy areas that is both like deeply technical and very few people outside the industry have a good sense of it. And it also sharply divides because you get a lot of conservationists, environmentalists with strong opinions who often make good points, but then... This is a tough one. So, this new forestry bill introduced by Katrine Conroy, it's quite radical, I think. So, it's intended to align our forestry framework with UNDRIP as well as to really, it really rethinks how we're going to do forestry. So, right now, uh, forestry plans, the felling of trees is decided by existing stewardship plans that are created largely or solely by forestry companies. Those are going to be effectively scrapped and replaced by 10-year forest landscape plans that are developed in consultation with First Nations and other stakeholders. This is basically putting the 
in the government's words, the BC government is back in the driver's seat in for in terms of forestry policy. So a lot more decisions being centralized rather than left to, I guess, market forces and the stewardship plans presented by forestry companies. The government will also be taking over the, or at least taking more control over forestry roads, largely for safety issues, as well as to make sure emergency vehicles can get through them, which I didn't realize forestry companies largely ran their own roads. They, like, to log in most places, you need to actually just build the access points to get your equipment and logging trucks to and from there. They're Vancouver Island, and I imagine most of the rest of the, much of the rest of the province is just crisscross with these backcountry dirt roads that the logging companies built. So yeah, it's probably valuable to put some standards on there, and it'll be extra work for the government for sure. But hopefully, it means yeah, life I, saved. And- it, just to be clear, that there are existing standards right, on some of the stuff. Like I, I know forest road bridges have their own specific BC government standard associated with them but sounds like they're tightening it up the government will also assign the chief forester which is a position with the authority to issue specific reforestation standards for areas hit by wildfires as we have our annual red sky season which thankfully it seems like we may have missed smoke season this year here we had some brief smoke but it's not been as bad we've just had rain for the last month and a half yeah, it's been a wet last month, but we were in a drought yeah, earlier. It's been a weird year. So. We're making up for our drought with our and our heat waves with our rainy fall. Anyway, the forester will be, you know, reforesting those areas hit by wildfire is going to be part of climate mitigation. And so having some standards there will be helpful. And the other part of this is the designation of wildland urban interface areas where they can put special rules in place to ideally protect communities from wildfires. I guess the idea will be to make sure you have a bit of a burn barrier to stop Lytton from being burned down again, to put it one way. Which is, yeah, definitely a reasonable and probably law and overdue So, I haven't seen reaction to this bill from anyone yet. If you have some, send it to me so we can start to shape our thinking around this. I did note Rob Shaw pointing out from Katrine Conroy that there is likely to be another forestry bill to come that will change tenures and other items. And there may also be further deferrals for, for old growth forests, which is something that protesters have been calling for. So other changes may come via cabinet order and regulations. Lots more to come on the forestry file, but this is quite the first salvo in terms of rethinking how things are done. And like you said, neither of us are forestry experts, but I'm just like really fascinated to watch what's happening. Moving on to quick takes. Federal vaccine mandates are back in the news this week as Parliament's Board of Internal Economy, the committee that basically runs Parliament, has set a new policy that MPs and well, people entering Parliament in general will need to be fully vaccinated uh, starting November 22nd. And this has drawn some opposition from the Conservative Party. Yeah, so the policy does exempt those with a valid medical reason, but they will need to provide a recent negative test. It doesn't sound like there are religious exemptions. 
Let's just note that Parliament is returning on November 22nd, which is quite a long time after the Liberals were re-elected and they promised a bunch of things to be done in their first 100 days and then they're only returning for four weeks, in which time they will have to introduce a throne speech, probably a fiscal update, assign committees, and then, I don't know, go for Christmas. This was the most important election since 1945, which... I can only conclude means every other parliament worked harder than it needed to. It clearly did. Yeah. Either that or maybe it was not quite as important as pretended. But uh, yeah, they're not exactly rushing back to work on this one. But when they do come back, they will have to deal with this. And the conservative MPs, I think, are mostly objecting on the parliamentary privileged grounds that Basically, there's pretty much very little that can be done to prevent an MP from entering and exercising their rights to basically be in Parliament. So the debate's a bit hairy there because MPs also have the ability to govern how they run themselves as a collective. Yeah, so yeah, you do kind of have two conflicting principles. So the way they tried to balance it here is that the board of internal economy allowed hybrid sittings to continue. So those, it sounds like just conservative MPs, however many there are who aren't vaccinated or refuse to get vaccinated, they can attend remotely. Nevertheless, O'Toole's caught between them and not looking crazy again. And so he, the conservatives like initially opposed this and objected to a secret meeting decided behind closed doors, but he also says at the same time his party will abide by the decision and respects the speaker. Yeah, so th this is one of those things I'm actually a little torn on because I am very much want to see everyone, particularly the public leaders, be out in front of this and leading by example. On the other hand, like the, the parliamentary privilege thing is not something to be ignored lightly, and I guess they've kind of figured out a workaround, but... I can at least understand trying to stand on principle on that one, even if anti-vaxxers suck. Uh, I will note that early in September, the BC legislature announced they will require people in the legislature to be vaccinated. That included politicians, I believe, and that was unanimous. The city of Vancouver recently said all people attend going into City Hall will need to be vaccinated, but they did not require it of councillors because they weren't sure if they legally could, but all councillors declared that they are vaccinated. Parliament is resuming. Conservatives aren't happy about it in the exact way it is happening. One thing that's not... Yeah, they're both unhappy that it's taken so long to resume and how it has been resumed. Or One thing they'll need to deal with as they resume is pandemic benefits. Many of those are set to expire actually just in a couple days on October 24th. Christopher Freeland was out today announcing a number of new targeted benefits that will cost the country $7.4 billion and extend till May 7th. Just to run through it quickly, the emergency rent subsidy, the wage subsidy and the recovery benefit are all ending this weekend. Some programs are extended, like the hiring program. There's new programs for hardest-hit businesses and tourism. There's also a new Canada worker lockdown benefit to replace the recovery benefit for those who are out of work explicitly due to lockdown but ineligible for EI. And then the recovery sickness benefit and the caregiving benefit are being extended to May with two additional weeks being added to the maximum you can claim for those. 
the NDP criticizes the federal government for not extending all of the programs, the conservatives criticize them for not ending them faster. So clearly they hit the right mark. This seems, yeah, yeah, I was actually just about to say, I, I think they're more or less on track here. Clearly, we're not entirely out of the woods yet. And there's a room for some programs to remain for the time being. But nevertheless, 80 something percent of the country's vaccinated. I think we long ago past the point where we were had a realistic shot just as a planet of COVID not becoming endemic. At some point, we do actually have to get back to something approaching normal or a reasonable status quo going forward. And that just can't happen when the government is subsidizing pretty much everything and everyone indefinitely, nor is it particularly feasible to maintain just the level of deficit spending indefinitely. Like These things needed to end. I think you can debate whether or not now versus I don't know, like a month from now when hopefully the fourth wave is really, truly over. But this is pretty much, I think, the the right direction for now. They'll probably want to eventually end the couple programs they announced or tweets they've changed here in like another six months or so. But as an intermediate step now, yeah, it's, I think, pretty much on track. And we're going to have to... I think we're going to have to start thinking and crafting policy a lot more on a just how do we go forward with kind of low levels of endemic COVID and a vaccinated population. And yeah, that means the subsidies need to get scaled down a lot among other things. I feel like we, like, I don't disagree. There's definitely a point on like when we need to stop. I think what we missed and we've really lost that was like right there in the early part of the pandemic was this, the world is changing, the world has changed. What among is the programs that have been rolled out needs to be made permanent? What needs to change permanently? And we still, we lost that energy. And the best things we're seeing are like patio program expanded patio programs are semi-permanent in vancouver in the summer and at least bc is looking at paid sick leave to start next year but and that is a good change but we lost the conversation there but about what radical transformations we could or should be looking at in the country just on while we're on this subject, before we move on, I do want to flag as well the comments made by Employment Minister Carla Qualtro, uh, who's at least these people are all at least minister until the new cabinet is announced on Tuesday. But she said relating to EI that if you lost your job because of your vaccination status, you will probably not be eligible for employment insurance. Basically, making the argument that you know you're fired for cause and you don't get. EI if you're fired for cause. Yeah, and not getting vaccinated when you need to get vaccinated seems like a perfectly reasonable cause for termination of employment. And yeah, it doesn't make sense to pay people who aren't willing to do that little thing EI. So yeah, once again, seems like a reasonable position they've struck on this that honestly just seems like enacting existing policy more than anything, but useful clarification nonetheless. 
And finally, out of Alberta, we finally, after years of waiting for it, and after three and a half million dollars were spent, and after extension and delay and extension, we finally have the results of the public inquiry into anti-Albertan activities or whatever it was called that targeted all the environmental nonprofits that were targeting the oil sands and stopping the pipelines. And Scott, did they stop the pipelines because of foreign funding? Not that they could prove. <laughs> this is the most like thud <laughs> like, landing of a report and it was yeah. the most expected one. Yeah, them and uh, a bunch of op-ed writers at the, the National Post definitely tried to insinuate off this. But yeah, there is no real... Not Nothing definitive came out of this. The report officially says there is no evidence environmentalists did anything wrong, illegal. If anything, they just exercised their free speech rights, which is what they claimed many a times. It notes that there is, over the period of 2003 to 2019, $1.2 billion of foreign funding to the Canadian environmental nonprofits that were considered and of that 54 million or pennies went to funding anti-Albertan resource development activity to quote them directly so like a smidgling nevertheless the report comes out with six recommendations uh, the first is to increase transparency and accountability for nonprofits and charities it says to put this on par with businesses which i always find quite humorous because charities are already required to put their full their full tax returns are put online you can look up what my charity made in revenue last year and what we spent that money on maybe there is room for more accountability in nonprofits the we scandal proves that but it's not even like a specific what specifically needs to improve is not in this report number 2 there should be quote Opportunity for meaningful dialogue with First Nations communities to focus on economic development. Really, they just want more Indigenous buy-in on pipeline programs, which is already pretty high in Alberta and along pipeline routes, at least with the, elect the councils. Number three, create an initiative to increase collaboration to advance Alberta as an international energy leader. Number four, develop world-class gathering and reporting on greenhouse gas emissions data. Number five, develop a natural resource strategy for Canada. And my favorite is number six, rebrand and promote Canadian energy. Scott, did you know we're just having a one-sided conversation about oil and gas development in this country? That's not the impression I got. Yeah, the impression I get is uh, from Rex Murphy and all the columnists at the National Post and Post Media who tell me that the oil and gas sector is under assault. And just like today, the National Post ran a I think it was Jesse Klein column about how the new mayor of Calgary is so out to lunch that the first order of business she wants to do is enact a climate emergency. And this is just ridiculous because even if Calgary stopped emitting, it would make no difference to the world. Anyway, that report is out. It makes me smile because it's ridiculous and it was such a waste of time and money. And it's another nail in the Jason Kenney coffin of absurd things he did as premier of the province. They gave this inquiry three and a half million dollars and the power of a public inquiry to solicit documents and do things. And this is what they come up with. I hope our public inquiry here on corruption doesn't end like this. That would be sad, but I feel it's a little more serious. 
Yeah, it, it definitely hasn't been like a an albatross around the government's net the way this had turned out to be with the Kenny government. Nor do I think they've had to come back and ask for, what is it, like three extensions, some additional funding, and maybe even they asked for a change of terms of reference. It was a mess. Might have only been two extensions. I can't quite recall. But yeah, this is definitely not going to be one of those uh, case studies in how to run an effective inquiry. Oh, but at least we got to be mad at a Bigfoot movie. Forgotten about that. Although, what's that? That was the war room, yeah, not not the inquiry. It's all the same, though. Anyway. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>